3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. And welcome to The Renegade Economist here on 3CR with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. And this week, it's all about the Victorian state budget. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for the future shape of our city? And we're joined live in the studio by Stuart Menzies, the Vice President of the Planning Institute of Australia. So a welcome, Stuart. Thank you, Carl. Excellent. So what was your basic take on the Victorian state budget? Uh, I think as a often you know, first term early budget, it really reflects the election commitments made by Andrew's government prior to the election last year. So really seeing really just a nexus between those election commitments and then delivery through the budget rather than a change you know, in, in sort of policy direction. Uh, one commentator described it as plugging the austerity holes and uh, really firming up again on health and education and uh, somewhat in, on transport as well. Yeah, I think looking at the operating aspects of the budget and the Andrews government said it themselves, you know, it's really about those services across health, education. And then on the capital side, it's really the, the, the big heavy stuff with Metro Rail and the, and the rail road grade separations. Yeah, so from the Planning Institute of Australia's uh, view, uh, what are you thinking about the, the big project, the, the Metro Loop and uh, the new underground uh, rail link that's basically going to double the size of our city loop? Well, I think um, any of these uh, major infrastructure projects really are, you know, they do shape the city, both the immediate things they address, whether it's you know, congestion or the capacity of the network, but over time they really do change and influence the change of the city, sometimes in an intended way, sometimes you know, in a different way. So similar to how the Western Ring Road really changed you know, the shape of northern and western Melbourne, I think Metro Rail will change a bit of the functioning of the public transport uh, system and um, provide probably more potential to build on in the broader network than just you know the, the five stations it has and the connections it makes to what it means for how the rest of the network can be used. Because that is something that I don't think enough people have really grasped, that it is probably going to double this, the amount of trains that can channel through the city loop. And so uh, that means all these new trains that the government has announced, uh, billions of dollars worth of new trains over the next decade, will have uh, some track to run on. That's right, both for the um, the metro project with the with the metropolitan system, um, it'll hook up the Sunbury line through the Caulfield line, but we'll see uh, you know an underground uh, network through um, Arden, then around the University Hospital precinct, and then down under the city to um, the domain. So that will change a bit of then how people move in and out of the city, um, but also with. And the budget's announcement is about additional rolling stock. And then we'll see at the same time in the next few months um, regional rail link coming online as well, which will change, I think, how people um, travel through the west and through to Geelong, um, but also the, the development that takes place in that region. One of the big pre-election commitments was the uh, Andrews uh, ALP opposition at the time promoting the removal of 50-level crossings. Now, there has been some sort of... Uh, mixed uh, interpretations of what the budget has said about this so far. Uh, how do, do you see the, the level crossing removal agenda playing out now? We're starting to see some numbers and some uh, hard numbers for the next three or four years. Uh, certainly, I think um, 
certainly was one of the, the central tenets of the election commitments. And so on my reading of the budget, there's 2 to $2.4 billion over the next four years, earmarked for um, road rail grade separations. Um, they've identified 50 across the network. I think there's around 170 level crossings in Melbourne, so the commitment's around 50, 17 in the next um, uh, few years, uh, which they've indicated um, all of the ones along the Dandong line, and then we see some others packaged up probably in pairs where there'd be works done by 2018. So I think in some areas... Um, there, and, and looking through the budget papers, it's really about congestion issues, greater capacity on the rail lines and safety matters. Um, I think the fourth element is then what it means for land use and development change around some of those locations. And there's real probably untapped potential for urban renewal in some of those grade set projects. Yes, well, that's something we're certainly excited about. And uh in uh, the papers, the budget papers, we see there's a new authority that's being created, the Level Crossing Removal Authority, and uh, they're going to deliver uh, these, uh, obviously, removals, but also identify opportunities for value capture development in surrounding areas. So this is the big issue uh, for us here on The Renegade Economist. We're concerned about these huge public infrastructure costs, which cost you know, somewhere around about uh, $50 million for a, a new train station and $30 million for an overpass. So it's a, it's a big outlay for the public. And when the surrounding property owners' land values increase by probably three times that uh, amount, we should be getting a fair return on it. But uh, unfortunately, uh, during the week, uh, there was talk about using value capture to finance some of the Metro Loop, how we, which is how we financed some 25% of the city loop back in the 70s. And unfortunately, the Lord Mayor came out and said that it wasn't an appropriate way to finance such a uh, massive project because everyone benefits from it. But the point that I... Uh, pushed was uh, that really we all benefit in faster travel times but what about the financial benefits as well now uh, Stuart Menzies from uh, the Planning Institute of Australia there's a lot of interest in value capture through the planning movement I'd say more so than in the uh, the economic sphere unfortunately but uh, what did you think when you saw uh, those sort of comments by uh, the Lord Mayor uh, well certainly um yeah, you know, the financing of infrastructures, you know, a challenge that a lot of governments put across. Um, we've moved from traditional approaches of of financing out of the the budget or, or simple state borrowings for those things, and um, some of the public private partnership type arrangements. Um, you know, some have ended up costing more over time if you look at the you know, the real costs. So, I think the ideas around um, that sort of betterment uh, value capture idea. Is I mean it's well practiced in a lot of other areas in Australia and overseas, where you can apportion the the uplift that either on a land basis or, or asset basis is is uh, brought about by an investment in infrastructure, and so it might not be full recapture of that infrastructure cost, and you just apportion it to you know a degree of benefit for either surrounding development or. In some instances, and I think with some of these, development on top of the sites, you know, if we're looking at grade steps going under. So it's not a new concept, but I think, you know, an untapped potential in in uh, Melbourne and in Victoria. And when you look at uh, some of the announcements the government has already made and, and what's in the pipeline, uh, there's some $30 billion of transport projects 
coming up and uh, we've heard of the the showdowns between federal and state on funding this infrastructure so hopefully the Victorian government's going to be a little creative and uh, this level crossings authority will uh, really start uh, pushing um, entities such as VicTrack to uh, to be involved in in making the most of their prime location. So, uh, yeah, these issues continue uh, year after year, and we just hope that with the congestion Melbourne's facing with such rapid population growth, that uh, we become a little bit more uh, adventurous in in the way we discuss things. But uh, unfortunately, too often the the uh, vested interests jump up and down and shoot that sort of thing down. So, um, yeah, in terms of uh, population growth and the interface councils, those councils out on the sprawling, out on the sprawl, there's uh, been some funding for them. Uh, what you know, planning is very involved in in these development areas. How have you seen the the Andrews uh, budget uh, come through on that front? Yeah, in the budget papers, there's an indication of a interface councils infrastructure fund. Well, there's not great amount of detail. It's indicated around $50 million. I I think and I assume it'll be focused probably on the smaller community items of infrastructure, sports, uh, cultural community facilities. The, the bigger costs are obviously in the uh, transport and uh, you know, health education infrastructure. There's, there's some elements in the budget around land purchases for future schools and um, uh, health facilities as a separate item. Um, but the, the detail of some of the road and other projects are... You know, they're in some sort of global parts of the budget, so it's hard to differentiate exactly where that's going. But, yeah, the one interesting item was around this uh, Interface Councils fund. I'd note that not all the Interface Councils are growth areas. Some of them are, are green wedge, so it's really where there's sometimes that diffuse uh, development pattern and it is hard to fund infrastructure compared to um, where you've got the rollout of new estates, you know, residential or industrial estates, where through the precinct planning process, you know, there is a contribution to the infrastructure. So it'd be interesting to see how that, that fund is utilised. Yes, well, I think it's only $50 million, so there's not much there. And uh, one of the other complexities is that uh, Premier Andrews has slapped a rating cap on local councils, so they're not going to have their own genuine independence on funding some of this infrastructure. So there must be a lot of concern. Um, I know the VLGA is doing a lot of work in this sort of area um, about uh, rate capping, and, and let's just see how the dust settles on this budget when it comes to that. Yeah, so the um, well, the government at the moment's asked the Essential Services Commission to look at how a rate capping regime would be done. It's earmarked for the following financial year. So I think you know, a lot of councils will be looking at a broader you know, income basis for funding their activities and their works, separate from the straight rate income. Does that mean more state and federal grants? That's what they're going to have to apply for? Or? Well, we've seen, I think, for the local government sector, the Commonwealth government's put a three-year freeze on grants to local government. And then that's probably then reapportioned amongst um, different councils. So growth areas will generally probably see an increase, but for most other councils, seen a contraction of what's coming out of the feds. And then across you know, state government for the last five years, there's been a you know, less uh, either a cap on uh, different funding regimes or withdrawal of different you know, grant arrangements. So. I think uh, the local government sector is seeing a triple whammy in terms of the financial pressures while still trying to deliver 
those on the ground important services and not, not probably not so much create new infrastructure even just to to finance the um, the renewal gap which is important you know, simple things like drainage and roads and parks and other things mm, yeah well the, the pressures are building up and with some privatized services are now costing a fortune as well we don't have the advantage of those wise old heads working in the council uh, depot office uh, uh, the, the costs are mounting and i just wonder if that's going to mean councils are going to be forced to increase regressive sort of charges user charges like we're seeing more and more with our rubbish removal and things like that is is that something you've heard about um, well, I think um, there's obviously two ways or a combination of things to do. It's to look on the income side, which is around where revenue might come from, uh, whether that's fees and charges, um, broadening um, uh, charges across different aspects. Um, the other is, is they're looking at expenditure and across levels of service or, or um, new capital works uh, provision. So I think all councils will be looking across the board. But the um, Essential Service Commission has yet to report on how it might be run, and uh, that'll be interesting through the year to see what happens. We also see that on some sides, and from the Planning Institute's point of view, the fees for, say, planning applications, they're prescribed, they're set out in legislation, councils can't vary them, and they haven't been reviewed for, for some 10 years. So there would be some things from you know, members of the Planning Institute would see as some review of proper costings to the, the planning fees that there are. Okay, so, uh, yeah, broadly, I think uh, from reading the Planning Institute's uh, email bulletin on the budget last night, it seemed like there weren't too many surprises. Transport did receive quite some funding, but it, it was down a little bit on last year, so it... it sort of was a moderate budget with no surprises. Um, has there been any detail you've dug into that, that has surprised you? In terms of the statements from the Minister for Planning, there's some things around some um, an audit of heritage aspects and some funding for um, looking at protection of the Yarra River. Um, I think the Institute would welcome those things, but, but obviously there's a lot of other waterways, you know, important waterways around Melbourne and the state you know, to, to get attention as well. There's some funding to work through the backlog of planning applications that sit uh, with the Minister, central city applications, um, and there's some funding which the Institute strongly supports for support to rural councils so that they can have additional expertise or input to help with applications in rural and regional areas. Um, so that's a very good thing. Um, there's some funding around infrastructure in some of the um, growth areas like Werribee with the employment precinct there. Um, but there isn't a there isn't a um, a strong sort of urban renewal programmed and financed aspect to the planning budget. It's really across those other infrastructure areas. Um, but the institute would be interested to see over the, over the years of the, the Andrews government about um, you know funding and support for the, the urban renewal aspects of um, of metropolitan and regional planning. Urban renewal, well, don't we love that? Um, Stuart, to finish up, uh, just give us a quick overview on how far Melbourne has come in the planning world. Uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, was seen as a bit of a backwater. We seem to have all of these uh, planning reviews all the time. Uh, Melbourne 2030 apparently is getting a rebadge. Where do we sit on the global scale and what are some of the things the Planning Institute is hoping uh, the Andrews government starts to uh, move towards? Well, I think you know, a great city like Melbourne deserves great planning. Um, I think some aspects are done really well. And there's certainly been a, a bit of chopping and changing, but since the 70s there's been a fairly consistent approach to 
you know, the future of Melbourne in terms of the importance of the central city, protection of the Victorian heritage, uh, urban growth boundary and green wedge areas. So the core of it's always been there. I think things have drifted from time to time. The Institute had um, some concerns around some of the zone reform process of recent years. So um, we strongly endorse the refresh that's underway of, of Plan Melbourne. The ministers appointed, uh, reappointed Ros Hansen and the Ministerial Advisory Committee that Matthew Guy had. And uh, I think that's a great step to really look back at some aspects of Plan Melbourne and we'd welcome some of the changes that are earmarked around affordable housing, climate change, energy efficiency, because both uh, the former Melbourne 2030 and Plan Melbourne have got some good aspects. But certainly on the implementation side and some of the policy aspects, you know, there's some room for improvement. But I think Melbourne stands up quite well broadly, but uh, no city gets it totally right. I think it's a combination of you know, good planning, good institutional frameworks, good regulatory arrangements, proper financing arrangements, and just the culture of the city and how governance takes place. So you know, cities like Portland in the United States, as you can draw aspects from, but I think there should be something you know, authentic about Melbourne's planning and you know, there's some parts of the city that really need some attention. I think some of the urban renewal about you know, whether it's contaminated sites or former industrial areas or some of the suburban areas in terms of um, the range of facilities there, there's a lot to be done. But we can look at other aspects like the central city or, or the protection of the Yarra Valley and other areas which are really good. So I think the Institute really just thinks, as I said, you know, a great city deserves continued good planning. And um, I think that's some probably reflected in that uh, later in May, you know, we'll be hosting the National Planning Congress and there's a lot of, you know, interest in Melbourne, you know, being looked at both for what's gone well and what lessons we can draw from elsewhere. Excellent. And people can find out the details to that? Be on the uh, the PIA website. And um, after the Congress, there's there's some free events on Monday the 18th. So there's some information on, on uh, the PIA Victoria website. Excellent. Well, that's Stuart Menzies from the Planning Institute of Australia and uh, the website is pia.org.au. I think so. I think if you just Google PIA, it'll come up. It's a national website, but with all the division, state divisions details there. Excellent, Stuart. Well, thanks for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. One, two, three, four. <laughs> One, two. Let me tell you how it will One for you, 19 for me Cause I'm the tax man Yeah, 
the old tax man. Thanks, uh, the Beatles. Had to play it once, didn't I? So, um, yeah, interesting talking about our Victorian uh, state budget. Uh, you know, here we are, Australia having enjoyed 24 years of uh, record economic growth. And overnight, well, yesterday, the Reserve Bank announced a interest rate cut. Uh, this seems maddening for me because uh, it's all about pushing down the exchange rate and uh, only 20 nations on the um, I think in the OECD have uh, orchestrated a drop in their uh, interest rates to push down their exchange rates so it's the latest form of protectionism and the Australian government's engaging in it and what of course does it do it uh, makes foreign investment in Australian real estate more and more uh, attractive. And uh, that, for me, is is a continuing worry when foreign investors took some 20% of Australian uh, auctions last year. They were the winning bidders. And, yeah, the costs amount up for both uh, first-home buyers and small business who are trying to afford uh, uh, the, the bond before they can even, um, you know, they've got to save up the bond before they can sign the lease. So uh, those costs continue to increase, and it's been very interesting to see both the federal and state governments announce somewhat uh, slap-handed policy reforms trying to address this incredible mobility of capital that we see uh, every month in our housing finance figures. And uh, the cost of first-home buyer loans is well over $300,000 on average in Australia. And you just wonder how people are finding some $2,000 a month to pay their mortgage when uh, the part-time growth in jobs is the only area where job growth is occurring basically so uh, unemployment's back up towards 6.4 percent the last time it was this high was under john howard and uh, young people can't find full-time work so it's very hard without the bank of mum and dad to uh, get a mortgage when you have part-time work so uh, it seems like some sort of feudal society continues to be pushed but what have the governments been pushing? The federal government announced some $5,000 acquisition fee for foreign investors. They've announced harsh penalties for anyone um, breaking those rules. They've given a moratorium till December, I think, to declare if whether you have bought your foreign investment illegally. And uh, it's it's something, but a five thousand dollar upfront fee is nothing compared to some sixty thousand plus in capital gains in the first year. So it's really going to do nothing, Tony Abbott. It's a populist move. All right, here in Victoria, what has Premier Andrews done? Well, over the weekend, as I'm trying to have the weekend off, God damn it, he announces that uh, uh, they're going to slap a three percent stamp duty surcharge and a 0.5% land tax premium on foreign investments. And that land tax premium is not quite confirmed yet. God damn it. Uh, Treasurer Palace does not have a press release RSS feed set up. I've emailed them. Come on, you guys. This is the 21st century. I want to read your press releases. It shouldn't just be insiders in the media game who get those press releases. Sort it out, will you? So I can't confirm whether this uh, 0.5% land tax tax premium is on empty homes owned by foreigners or by uh 
foreign investors who do not reside in this country. So there's still some detail there. If it is on empty homes, I hope the State Revenue Office will be adopting our water consumption proxy for vacancy. That's got to happen. So what will a 3% stamp duty surcharge do? It'll whack some $18,000 on a $600,000 purchase. Sure, that's significant, but the land tax hit is very minimal. It's only a $1,700 type imposition. So we would much prefer, of course, to see the opposite of that with a um, an $18,000 land tax charge and uh, a $1,700 stamp duty because, of course, that's what we're pushing is a move away from stamp duties. A reminder, stamp duties are bad because... Uh, In my own situation, I'd be tempted to move, but when I said to my wife, look, uh, it's going to cost us $35,000 in stamp duty just to buy our next house, that's half a year's wages. That's crazy. So uh, we're going to be stuck in our house for years to come. So uh, how many people are having to commute 45, uh, 55, 75 minutes each way to work because they can't afford these sort of stamp duty impositions? So that's serious stuff. We've got to um, fix that up. And if we did switch these taxes around, uh, even on foreign investment, it would also put some supply side pressure on these guys. Many of them who have a different sort of investment framework where they buy and hold it for some 10 or 15 years and uh, sell knowing that there'll be a significant capital gain there. They really don't care too much about minuscule uh, rental incomes of some sixteen dollars to $17,000 a year when these capital gains of forty to sixty k are being delivered in their sleep. So uh, a land tax of some, if it was $18,000 a year, that would be huge. That would mean that over 20 years, they would realize they'd be paying some $360,000 in land tax. So all of a sudden, they would only be, they'd basically be only willing to pay half the price they are now. So that would uh, pull them out of the market and uh, level the playing field for those who want to live in these new homes. So, uh, well, some say that uh, providing um, incentives for uh, foreign investors has helped build our housing supply. I don't know whether the quality of stock that's been built in the CBD uh, is really appropriate when developers seem to be just building these uh, bedrooms that uh, cupboard doors barely open with a queen-size double bed in there. So, uh, Yeah, it's interesting that the Andrews government has made a move on this, but it seems to reflect uh, their populist-type agenda that continues to um, come through, whether it's rate capping or public sector wage increases. Uh, These are just, in the end, benefits for property speculators who are going to be able to uh, realise that incomes have gone up in some areas, penalties for holding real estate are dropping, so uh, it encourages... uh, greater unearned incomes and uh, that's what we need to be targeting payroll tax is some 5.6 billion dollars and uh, when you work out that it costs us a dollar 30 for every one dollar collected it's sending us backward and uh, the government should know better on that front and we should be getting rid of these uh, payroll taxes too all right my name's carl fitzgerald check us out at earth sharing on twitter been a busy week there and contact via renegades at earthsharing.org.au oh yeah